Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks if I can take a look at the case of the West Memphis Three. So specifically looking at the mental health factors, the personality factors, and really the evidence kind of for and against these individuals being guilty. And I'll talk about who the West Memphis Three are in just a moment. So before we get into this analysis, the individuals involved that I'll be talking about here, of course, are real people. So I just want to put out the reminder that I'm not diagnosing anybody, only speculating on what could be happening in a case like this. So this is really an interesting case because we see a lot of personality and behavior and mental health aspects at work in it, not only on the defendant side, but also on the law enforcement side. So this is, I think, an interesting case at so many levels. Now, the timeline I'll go through here, I'm going to give a brief version of the timeline because there's an extensive timeline available for this case. But the timeline is actually fairly straightforward in one sense. You have the crime, the trial, the conviction, the imprisonment, and then the release. But again, there's a lot of little things that happened, especially during the incarceration period, and I'm going to try to sum those up without going to a lot of detail and then move on to the analysis portion of this case. This case starts in 1993, in May, with three eight-year-old boys going missing, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. They're reported missing several hours after leaving school, an elementary school, and it was located in West Memphis, Arkansas. We see that their bodies are discovered a day after they went missing in a creek, and they were naked, beaten, and tied up. So a horrible crime that, of course, drew a lot of attention from law enforcement and the community. Shortly after the bodies were discovered, the police began to interview a man named Damien Eccles, who was 18 at the time, and Jason Baldwin, who was 16 at the time. Now, if we add in Jesse Miss Kelly, who was 17 at the time, that gives us the West Memphis Three. That's where that term comes from. So either way, they interview Damien and Jason, and then they also talk to a woman named Vicki Hutchinson, who claims that she witnessed Eccles 
and Miss Kelly, Jesse Miss Kelly, practicing witchcraft. And we also see that her eight-year-old son claimed that he visited the area where the murders took place and saw people engaging in witchcraft-type activities, and he later claimed to actually see the murders. So either way, now we move to June of 1993, and we see that the police are interviewing Jesse Miss Kelly. And they mention that there's a $35,000 reward for information that could lead to the apprehension of the murderers. And we also see that they question him for several hours. Eventually, Jesse Miss Kelly starts to tell the officers about the specific case, about the murders. And he tells them that he was involved in the murders, and so was Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin. Now, one of the difficulties here with this confession, I'll talk more about this when I get into the factors pointing toward guilt and pointing toward innocence, is we see there's a lot of inconsistencies in the confession. So again, I'll get to those details in a while, but either way, they did have a confession at that time. Now, based on this confession, the police arrest all three, the West Memphis Three, and file charges for first-degree murder in the deaths of the three second graders. After they were arrested, a short time later, we learned they would be tried separately. Miss Kelly would be tried alone, but Damien and Jason would be tried together. And that's because, of course, Jesse Miss Kelly implicated the other two through his confession. So we see in February of 1994 that Miss Kelly is convicted of first-degree murder in the deaths of one of the boys and second-degree murder in the deaths of the other two boys. And he's sentenced to life in prison plus two 25-year terms. Not long after this, in March of 1994, we see that Damien Eccles is found guilty, and so is Jason Baldwin, and they were found guilty of capital murder. We see that Damon is given the death penalty, and Jason Baldwin is given life without the possibility of parole. Now we move forward in time to June of 1996, and we see that a film is released called Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. So Robin Hood Hills was like the neighborhood where the bodies were found. This begins airing on HBO, and really it cast a lot of doubt about the guilt of the West Memphis Three. It attracted a lot of attention to this particular case. In that same year, 1996, in December, we see that the Arkansas Supreme Court refuses to overturn Damien's and Jason's convictions. And I won't go through all of their losses in terms of appeals, but there were several over the next several years. So they had many appeals that were turned down. Now, in June of 2000, we see another film, Paradise Lost 2, Revelations. This begins airing on HBO and really looks at the movement to free the West Memphis Three, and it introduces some new evidence. In October of 2003, we see that individual, Vicki Hutchinson, who had told the police some information before about the West Memphis Three implicating them. She now tells a reporter that everything she told the police was a lie, and she also told reporters that the police warned her that she had to cooperate with them or else her child would be taken away. So this kind of leans in favor of the defense. In July of 2007, we see that DNA collected at the crime scene is tested, and it's not found to match the DNA of Damien Jason or Jesse. One hair was tested that was found in the knot used to tie up the victims, and it was shown to be not inconsistent with an individual named Terry Hobbs, who is the stepfather of one of the murder victims named Stevie Branch. 
Also in 2007, we see that celebrities start to get involved on behalf of the West Memphis Three. So we see these films coming out, and now celebrities are becoming active, and the case is drawing even more attention. So again, this is late in 2007, and in September of 2008, we see that Judge David Burnett denies a request for a new trial for Eccles and declines to hold a hearing to consider the new DNA evidence that I mentioned before. Now, in November of 2010, so now we move forward two years, we see that the state Supreme Court orders a new circuit court evidentiary hearing for the West Memphis Three. The court says that the circuit judge must consider not only the DNA evidence that was presented by the defense, but other exculpatory evidence as well, including evidence that was not presented during the original trials. So moving ahead to February of 2011, we see that defense attorneys for the West Memphis Three file briefs on evidence and testimony they hope will develop in the Arkansas Supreme Court ordered hearing. And this hearing would determine whether the West Memphis Three would receive a new trial. So the defendants ask for DNA testing of physical evidence from the case. They make arguments about false statements that were made and about a supposed confession from Damien Eccles that was introduced into evidence in the original trial. And also they bring up potential jury misconduct that occurred in one of the original trials. Now, again, this is February of 2011. If we move to March of 2011, we see that hearings are scheduled based on what the attorneys filed in February. So at this point, the pressure is really on in terms of the prosecution feeling the pressure because of this new hearing that is now scheduled. So in August of 2011, we see kind of unusual plea arrangement known as an Alford plea that's used in this case. The West Memphis Three plead guilty to murder, but are still allowed to maintain their innocence. That's what happens in an Alford plea. So the judge releases them for time served, it was over 18 years, and gives them a 10-year suspended sentence. So they're released, but they're still guilty, and if they do something wrong, of course, they would go back to prison. Now what's interesting about this Alford plea in this particular situation is that it was offered to the West Memphis Three, but they couldn't accept it independently. And what I mean by that is, in order for them to accept the Alford plea, and plead guilty and get out of prison, all three needed to agree to it. And the situation that was set up here, of course, is that Damien Eccles was sentenced to die. So there was a lot of pressure on the other two to accept the Alford plea. So it wasn't offered independently, they had to take it as a group or not, and they took it. And of course, as I mentioned, they were released from prison. Now another part of this Alford plea is the West Memphis Three had to agree not to sue, so there would be no civil hearings coming up, no civil case, and they had to agree that the prosecutor had sufficient evidence to obtain a conviction in court. So essentially they get to maintain their innocence, but they're saying the prosecutor had enough to convict them. So really, again, kind of an unusual arrangement, but we do see this used from time to time. It's not the only time I've heard of an Alford plea. Now if the West Memphis Three more or less stuck it out in prison instead of accepting the Alford plea, it's likely that they would have been granted a new trial, and it's also likely they would have been acquitted. This is according to the prosecutor at that time, Scott Ellington. Now, he maintains, though, that the West Memphis Three are guilty. He believes they're guilty, but he entered in this agreement because he believed that they would have been acquitted in a trial. So, 
That's where we end up here with the Alford plea and the West Memphis Three. Now again, this occurred in 2011. In 2012, we see a film premiering at the Sundance Film Festival named West of Memphis. And here we see the suggestion that Terry Hobbs was likely the killer of the three boys. Now, of course, we've heard this suggestion before, but here we see it actually in a film. So again, a lot of interesting evidence, a lot of appeals being denied, and kind of an odd situation with the Alfred plea, and then, of course, an odd situation with a lot of celebrities being involved and all these films being made. So it seems like, at first, kind of a simple case, then it seems very complex the more you look into it. Now, in terms of where things are now, as far as I know, there have been no changes. The West Memphis Three have not been able to prove their innocence, and there's been no arrest of another party, right? So it just kind of stands exactly where it was left in 2011. So now I'll talk about the evidence that makes them look guilty, what makes me believe that they may have done it, and then I'll look at the evidence that makes them look innocent, the information that kind of convinces me that maybe they didn't do it. So when I talk about some of these aspects, there'll be kind of the opposite aspect talked about in the other section. So I will get to all the information that I believe is important, but it'll take putting both sections together to really get the complete picture. So now in terms of the evidence of guilt, well, when we talk about guilt in this case, I mean, the first significant piece of evidence is that confession by Miss Kelly. And a lot of times we see it characterized as he was like coerced and he had a low IQ, and I'll talk about that on the innocence component here. But we see these features, but actually Miss Kelly did confess multiple times. This wasn't just a one-time event. Now, of course, the argument could be made once somebody confesses once, they're kind of locked into that story. So confessing additional times really doesn't mean anything. But still, we do have this confession, and there's some inconsistencies in it, but I'll talk about that on the innocent side. Now, staying with Miss Kelly for a moment, we see that he fails to mention his alibi during his confession. His alibi was that he was at a wrestling match, so that doesn't look really good. And we see that when his alibi was constructed in the trial, the witnesses actually contradicted each other. So, in the end, we don't really see a good alibi for Miss Kelly. Now, lack of an alibi is different than being guilty, but still, it's a piece of evidence that points toward guilt. We also see that even though he has a low IQ, Miss Kelly had a job, relationships, he could read and write, he was a functioning member of society. Another feature we see here is there's discussion that he was in interrogation for over 12 hours, but actually he confessed about four hours in, a little bit over four hours into his time with police. So it wasn't after 12 hours, it was after about four, four and a half hours. Now moving on to Jason Baldwin, I think the element here with Jason Baldwin that points toward guilt, of course, is that he has no alibi, right? There was really just no alibi in his instance. Again, that doesn't mean he was guilty, but it just doesn't look good. Now, a lot of the evidence in terms of what makes the West Memphis Three guilty actually has to do with Damien Eccles. We see a lot of focus on that in terms of guilt. He said some odd things when being interviewed by the police, and he was interviewed several times. He talked about what a person might do if they had committed the crime without admitting guilt exactly. He said they probably felt good about it, and they probably felt like they had a lot of power and felt good about having a lot of power. He also made statements in that same sense about the methodology that the murderer would have used, and he talked about how the victims would have been easy to control. So 
his kind of unusual statements, even though they were like really theoretical, were something that made him look guilty. Now, Damien Eccles also had a mental health history. And of course, this gets into an unusual area because a mental health history isn't really tied to criminality. I've talked about this before in other videos. But his specific types of mental health problems, the ones that we see in the evidence anyway, apparently frightened his parents. But they're not really well described, the mental health components, right? We see potential narcissism, potential psychopathy, potential psychosis. These words seem to be thrown around without any real concrete examples. We do have just a few examples, though, of some of his thought processes. He did believe that he was possessed by a demon, and he did have homicidal and suicidal thoughts. We see in a disability application, he described himself as homicidal, suicidal, as having manic depression, which the correlate now would be bipolar disorder, as having schizophrenia, and as being sociopathic. So those are his own words to, I guess, file a disability claim. So again, we see a lot of different mental health symptoms and disorders kind of brought up there, and it's not really clear what he actually had. It also appears that Damien Eccles had difficulties with the truth. He said a lot of statements that turned out to be untrue. One of the most glaring examples is he said he did not live in West Memphis at the time of the murders, and of course he did. And he also said he was not familiar with the neighborhood Robin Hood Hills, but he was. There was really clear evidence that he was quite familiar with that neighborhood. Other evidence specifically around Damien and Nichols that makes him look guilty. We see that witnesses saw Eccles close to the area where the bodies were found and he was covered in mud. And these witnesses have never changed their story and they really didn't have any incentive for coming forward and saying Damien Eccles was there. They also knew Damien Eccles well, so it makes sense that they could have recognized him in the location where they said he was. Although, of course, we know that eyewitnesses are notoriously inaccurate, but that's really more an element for the innocence component there. We also see that there's problems with Damien's alibi. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com He claims his lawyers didn't call people that would have supported his alibi. He was allegedly talking on the phone at the time when the murders were being committed. But that seems really unusual. If his defense attorneys had an alibi for him, they would have constructed it. So this doesn't make a lot of sense. We also see that Damien Eccles bragged to people he knew 
about the killings at a softball game and later on claimed that if he did that, it was probably a joke. So that didn't look good for him. And then we move to the limited amount of physical evidence. There wasn't really a lot of physical evidence in this case. There was a knife found in a lake behind where Damien lived. So this didn't look good for him. Why was the knife in the lake? Why didn't he just have it in his possession or in his residence? But either way, this knife was located in the lake and the handle of the knife matched a mark that was on the forehead of one of the victims in terms of the size and shape. We also see that blue wax was found on the bodies and this blue wax matched a candle found in Damien's room, so in his residence. This candle belonged to his girlfriend. So again, not much physical evidence, but there was some. Now in terms of all three, the West Memphis three together, we see that all three had exhibited violent behavior in the past, so this didn't look good. And they pled guilty. So even though the Alford plea really seemed kind of coerced and it's an unusual kind of legal instrument, they did plead guilty. Now, they were allowed to plead guilty and maintain their innocence. So I look at this as really not something that points squarely toward guilt, but it doesn't really point squarely toward innocence either. So that's why I kind of left it at the end of this section on guilt to transition to the section on innocence. So looking at the evidence that points toward innocence, I mentioned before the eyewitness accounts. Eyewitnesses usually aren't really reliable when it comes to remembering faces, remembering times. So you have to be careful when interpreting kind of eyewitness accounts. So we see here other evidence I think is more convincing of innocence would really be the nature of the crime. This is one of those elements that I kind of keep coming back to as I think about this case. When we look at a crime like this, you see three second graders, three boys who are murdered, tied up, and again found naked. So there seems to be kind of a sexual domination component to this crime, even though there was no sexual assault. Now, when we think of this type of crime, we usually don't think of multiple perpetrators. Usually with like a domination murder like this, there's one perpetrator. And the motives for this type of crime are typically restricted. Again, we're talking about second graders. So you're not going to see motives like revenge or money or the involvement of like organized crime but rather something like, as I indicated, domination killing. So usually someone who commits this type of murder is also organized, and the West Memphis Three just don't really strike me as being organized. None of them seem particularly organized. So does this mean that they're innocent? No, but this just isn't the type of crime we would expect to see three young men as the perpetrators. That just doesn't line up with the evidence of the crime scene. Now, I've seen the argument that different types of knots were used, so this points to different perpetrators. Maybe, but one person could certainly tie different types of knots. So I look at that evidence and I think that doesn't really outweigh the expected type of perpetrator profile for murders like this. Now moving to the confession. In a way, I use the confession, of course, to show that the West Memphis Three might be guilty but it can also be used to show that they're not guilty. Certainly this confession could have been coerced. This is relatively common when law enforcement is dealing with like a high-profile case and they're under a lot of pressure to find somebody they can call guilty. We see that Jesse Miss Kelly had a low IQ. I saw different estimates available 
at different sources, but there seems to be a convergence around the IQ of 72. So just to put this in perspective, if somebody has an IQ of 72, that means their IQ is ranked at around the sixth percentile, right? So that's the number six. So that means that 94% of the population would have an IQ higher than Jesse Miss Kelly. That's something to keep in mind, especially talking about like interpersonal pressures. The police certainly pressured him, and they probably suggested ideas to him. And this kind of points to the next piece of the confession that seems suspect, which is his confession is inconsistent with the actual crime. He said that rope was used to tie up the victims. Actually, their shoelaces were used. He said that Damien and Jason sexually assaulted the three boys, but no sexual assault took place. He also said that he committed the murders with them in the day, but they occurred at night. So confessions are powerful indicators of guilt, but they have to be consistent with the crime. They have to be accurate, and we don't see that in this case. Something else here that points toward innocence is the lack of logic used by the West Memphis Police Department. They used kind of a method I call the tail wagging the dog, right? So they found a suspect first and kept pressing to make that suspect fit the crime. The way investigative processes really should work, this is logic in general, not just for police work, would be you look at the crime and then you look at the population and see if anybody matches that, right? You look for people that are around the crime scene, that have a motive. You look for evidence like video evidence or audio evidence or other physical evidence that ties suspects to the crime. You don't start with the suspect, right? The dog wags his tail. The tail doesn't wag the dog. So this is a problem, I think, in particular in a really high-profile case and a small police department that evidently churned away offers from other departments to come and assist. There's also evidence presented at trial that the West Memphis Three Police Department was highly disorganized. And what I mean by evidence presented at trial is the way the evidence was presented shows that they really weren't necessarily good at police work. So this kind of moves toward the side of innocence. Now, another element here that points towards innocence is Terry Hobbs, right? Terry Hobbs is implicated with the DNA. He has a history of violence. He's a good alternative suspect, and he is an individual, and therefore much more consistent with the nature of the crime. I talked about that before. This was likely committed by an individual, not a group of people. Now, there are also other potential suspects that were brought out during the trial. They didn't pan out, but they weren't excluded completely. So it's not just Terry Hobbs here. There are some other people that could have committed this crime as well. Now, the next element that points to innocence would be the nature of those convicted, right? So the nature of the West Memphis Three. So Damien Nichols, and to some extent the other two, did not really fit in with the local community. They weren't really liked. They appeared to be outsiders or misfits. We see this report that Damien Nichols had the word evil tattooed across his knuckles. He had an interest in the occult. And of course, a primary theory in this crime was that this was some sort of satanic ritual, right? We see that as testimony in the trial. So he kind of matched that description because of his interest in the occult. We also see that he dressed in dark clothing. He liked heavy metal music. And again, as I mentioned, he was interested in witchcraft or Satan worship or something like that. 
And that just didn't really, I think, match, again, the norms of the community. So certainly this would lead to bias. Now we know, of course, the trial took place in another town, not in West Memphis, but it makes sense if the values of West Memphis weren't consistent with Damien Eccles. It would make sense that another town nearby, or even a distance away, you would still see a jury pool that had similar values. So I think the nature of those convicted and how they relate in terms of the values of the community does point toward innocence. Now another element here is we see those strange statements that Damien Eccles made, and yes, they didn't look good, but Jason Baldwin didn't make any statements like that. So these individuals were kind of grouped together, and it was just assumed that all three did it, and not one person could have done it alone, but we don't really see consistent statements between Damien and Jason. Now this points to the innocence of Jason, not necessarily Damon, but still, it kind of breaks apart this whole theory of the crime. So those are some factors that point toward innocence. I talked about the factors that point toward guilt. So I want to review kind of a few, I think, key features of this case that really make it interesting. And then I'll talk about like my thoughts on their guilt or innocence. So the first thing that really stands out to me here is whenever we see an intersection of mental health and personality with the law, and even when we don't, even when we just see an intersection of people with the law, we see this desire by law enforcement to extract a confession, to have somebody talk without a lawyer present. And this case could have been really simplified if Jesse Miss Kelly had his lawyer available the first time he was questioned. And the same thing for somebody like Damien Eccles. Now this of course would require Damien Eccles going out and securing an attorney, which he didn't do at the time when he was being questioned as far as I know. But either way, there seems to be this drive for police to get people in and get them to confess. I know this makes their job easier in a way, but I'm not really happy with this practice. And there's a few reasons why. Our criminal justice system is an adversarial system, right? You have the defendant and then you have the state. And the full weight of the government comes down on the defendant. Now, when you have adversarial systems, when we think of like sports, like basketball, baseball, football, they're teams and they're against each other. One is trying to win and the other one will lose. But both teams know the rules. With the criminal justice system, it seems like it's okay that one party doesn't know the rules. Now, the police know the rules, but defendants or suspects don't always know the rules. They don't always understand the Miranda warning, right? The Miranda warning is like the right to remain silent and all of that. They don't understand that all the time, and the police push them and really deceive them, manipulate them. And I just think this case really highlights the problems with that practice. I don't really have a solution because I know there's this theory that the system would grind to a halt if everyone's rights were protected. But I find that unusual in itself. So we have a system where if everyone's rights were defended, the system would shut down? I don't know. I kind of dispute that theory. I've heard a number of lawyers tell me about that theory. I'm not a lawyer myself, of course. I'm a mental health counselor, but I've heard a lot of lawyers tell me that. And I'm not sure I believe it. I'm kind of torn on that. I would rather see everyone's rights protected. So if somebody wants to confess, that's fine. That does make things easy. But I would like their lawyer to be present, especially in situations where the person may be compromised. So this kind of connects back to, of course, Jesse Miskelly and this idea that he had a low IQ. 
If there's a reason to believe that somebody might be easily manipulated, that's all the more reason why a defense attorney should be there. So I would just like to see people's rights protected. And again, this case really kind of touches on that. The next element in this case I think that really stands out is the power of celebrities for good or for bad. This case would have remained the same. Nothing would have changed but for the celebrities being involved, right? We see they come down from Hollywood, they make films, they give speeches, they get people all fired up, and that does lead to justice, maybe, or maybe it leads to injustice. We don't really know, but it did lead to change either way. So when celebrities see situations like this and they decide to get involved, that really does create a tremendous pressure. I don't necessarily see this as a bad thing, it's just like their selection criteria, right? Like, so the celebrities pick out cases based on something that touches them personally and not necessarily based on, like, prioritizing it on need or something like that. So I like their involvement in this case because it did kind of, I think, move people in the direction of looking at the case more closely, and that gave us more insight into the evidence. But I realized their involvement could be considered both a positive and a negative. So in terms of the last item I'll cover, like what this case really highlights for me, is really the ease of being convicted. It is easy to be convicted of a crime, and how the path to a trial is not all that hard to get on, right? So if we consider ways to be found not guilty, ways to not be convicted of a crime, the easiest way to fail to be convicted of a crime is not to be tried. Right, so if someone had a choice between not being tried for a crime or being tried for a crime, even if all the evidence was in their favor, even if there was like a hundred different segments of video showing that they didn't do it, somebody would still choose not to be tried at all. When somebody's tried, they're at risk for being convicted. So then we really have to look earlier in the sequence of events and say, okay, what makes it so somebody can be tried? Well, the police, right? So their standard isn't reasonable doubt, right? Being guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Their standard is probable cause, and sometimes really not even that, as we see in this case. So the police can decide, essentially, who goes to trial. I know I'm simplifying the system a bit here, but really they can, through behavior, including misbehavior. And that puts somebody on trial and then makes them vulnerable to be convicted. So what this case really points out is, it's easy to be convicted of a crime because it's a really low barrier at that first level of dealing with the police. So what are my thoughts on the guilt or innocence of the West Memphis Three? This case is difficult. You know, I looked at this case for a long time. I first saw this case several years ago. I looked at it then. It's changed a little when I examined it recently. I would say this. In terms of the standard of reasonable doubt, to me, it seems clear they're not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Right, so in the eyes of the law, I don't see how they could be considered guilty. There are many reasonable doubts in this case. Now, reasonable doubt, of course, doesn't mean that somebody really didn't do it, right? Being not guilty is different than being innocent. What's the probability that they're not guilty? I really don't know. I'm back and forth, but I would probably lean more toward the idea that they're actually not guilty, that they're truly innocent. This makes a little bit more sense to me than the idea of the being guilty. I base my opinion on several factors, but the big factors for me, that confession 
and also the nature of the crime. Like those two pieces just lead me to believe that they're probably innocent. But again, I don't know for sure. As is the case with a lot of these types of criminal acts where we see somebody's convicted and they may have been wrongly convicted, one thing for sure that we know is there's a tragedy here, right? Several. The murders are tragic. Three boys lost their lives in a terrible manner, and nothing can make that right. We see that if the West Memphis Three was wrongly accused, then innocent people were sent to prison, and the guilty parties are out free, potentially to commit more murders. If the West Memphis Three, in fact, were guilty, if these people were guilty, then murders were set free, and that's a tragedy as well. So with this case, we see a tragedy no matter what, several of them, no matter what. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.